Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode hello hello welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast peter how's it going it's going well we're excited to be back we are moving we've adapted to the cold not to foreshadow our guest today but we have uh, adapted to winter in canada and we are doing all sorts of different sports adapted is definitely like a strong term i feel well like. we'll learn more about that today and whether you can adapt to the cold oh very nice uh yeah we did a nice cross-country ski with a couple friends this weekend it was my first ever backcountry cross-country ski uh i've made maybe only cross-country skied like a dozen times yeah, maybe point. more off-piece than backcountry but we were not on groom trail but yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it was also my first time ever going down a hill on skis. It has yeah. to be said. Like, I, it's not like, oh yes, but I'm an expert, double black diamond. It might like, have been good to do ski. some trial runs on a, you know, wider, <laughs> tree-free you know what? descent. This but... is this is how you learn. <laughs> yeah. No, it was a good day. It was cold at, po- at points, but also very nice at yeah. points. So. Yeah. And then a good snowshoe the next day. So very mixing it up. Consummate athlete winter weekend. Okay, and you've been on a lot of podcasts yeah. as of late. Yeah, it's really funny. We actually had record. I had recorded a few in November and December, and then everything just kind of came out this week. So uh, I was on the Sonia Looney show. This is my, I think, third time on there, and it's always awesome talking to Sonia. She's one of my favorite guests. We've had her on our show a couple times. We actually will have an episode with her coming up because she also has some new stuff. Um, but we talked a lot about uh, sort of red ass body image. Um, and then, of course, all about our new book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, so Athlete Habits. Uh, so we talk, yeah, ton of different stuff from that book. And then I was over on the Trail Running Women podcast, um, which is hosted by Hillary Spires, who we actually had on talking about a 50K trail run FKT she did in the summer. Um, and she and I sort of talked a bit about my lack of athletic background and where I've kind of come from and gone to in trail running and then a bit again about our book but actually really different uh, questions that both of them asked which is always really fun and then last I was on the Outspoken Cyclist podcast again uh, over the weekend and that was another super super fun one talking about a lot of cycling and motivation and you know Again, stuff from the book, but funny enough, all three interviewers asked completely different questions. So okay. if you listen to all three, you'll get totally well, different well, stories. And we'll try and link to all those, uh, but people can also just probably search your name in their favorite podcast or mm-hmm. sort it by episodes and they will find those. Yes, exactly. Okay. So today's guest is, I think, another one of your bucket list guests. We've just I think been so. He's been on our list for a while. Yeah. So we have Dr. Stephen Chung, who is at Brock University, so not too far from here, and actually one of the universities I can considered, uh, which I didn't end up going, and I don't know why, because now I'm kicking myself because I could have ended up doing all this cool stuff, all these big research studies yeah, that Stephen's done. Yeah, were you not done. getting so bitter anytime he talked about like I was working with a master's student oh, on his thesis? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, like a good time. It sounds like a lot of work too. He he underplays or downplays some of the hard work he has to do to do all this stuff and how long it takes to do these studies. So. Kudos to him and uh, 
yeah, so he's at Brock University. He runs the Environmental Ergonomics Laboratory. So he looks at heat. He looks at cold. You know, a lot of the dehydration studies, you know, his names will be on these. Uh, some of the big stuff around the recent world championships and the Olympics with the heat adaptation has been, again, stuff that he's been part of. And he's also worked with the military in different uh, ways again looking at these heat heat stress performance in the heat so for cyclists for athletes this is very relevant and so we get into a few of these studies today during the episode i think it's also worth noting that he is also a cyclist and a consummate athlete we get into the consummate athlete side later in the episode but i mean he's been racing cyclocross for a while he was on the trainer right before we even got on the call that's right uh, so you know, he's not just an academic doing this in a lab. He's also kind of putting all of this into practice in his own life and experimenting with different sports. Yeah, and... which are those? Those are the people we like—the people who are smart, but they're and they're doing cool things in their academics and their in their professional career, and then they're also put into practice. You know, they're getting out there. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, should we get into it? Yes. All right. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Stephen Chen. You know, you started in oceanography. What, what, like, was, did you really like whales or like, what was the thing that made you start in that? Um, there was actually no real rhyme or reason I got into, I knew going into undergrad at University of British Columbia that I, of the sciences, biology was my favorite. And so I was looking for something in there. And between first and second year, I kind of just stumbled on on kind of declaring a major and seeing that, oh, you can get a combined honors in zoology and oceanography. Well, I like zoology, I like biology, and and let's look at oceanography too. And then I kind of just stayed there. I got the fortune to work with just an amazing mentor in my fourth year and uh, Paul J. Harrison, who unfortunately passed away in 2017 or end of 2016, but um, you know, he was just such a great person, got me in absolute love with science. And um, so that was the real launching pad. And then after undergrad, it was, well, what do I actually want to do with it? Again, I was passionate about bike racing. So if I'm going to be reading and writing papers or reading papers the rest of my life, hopefully I want to read something that has a personal interest too, and ideally make myself faster. So that was the real idea behind the switch to to um, kinesiology. Okay. And I mean, I think that's probably true of a lot of, you know, when I look through your, uh, your bio, I guess, you know, you've traveled to Scotland, you've done a wide, you know, in military and sport, you know, again, this oceanography. So sometimes that, that range that, um, you know, just eclectic background, I guess, and you could say, um, is a big part of people who, you know, end up having success, maybe more in a specific thing. Would you find, like, do you think that that, like, would you do it different, I guess, is my ultimate question, uh, as far as the oceanography? Um, no, because I, I think, and this is something I tell, not just my own grad students, but when I give talk to grad students is really that I've made a career out of not having a plan. And really, I... I just love new ideas and opportunities. And I'm not one of those scientists who says, you know, for my career, I want to understand X. I, I'm not that type of, of scientist. I just really have no career plan. I just love what I do. And if an idea comes along that interests me, I would much rather have the opportunity to pivot to that and explore that. So 
it's it's great because it opens the doors to a lot of different opportunities and whether it's to travel whether it's to interact with different colleagues whether it's to study a new idea or topic that maybe i hadn't thought about so i prefer not to have that really blinded approach and that's not to say you can't be a successful scientist that way but it's just not the way i work i really again the thing i tell my students is your only job is to tell me tell me something and get me interested in it if you can do that we'll go explore it and so it's uh, it's great for my students i think and it's great for me because it's never boring it's never the same thing over and over again right right it's sort of that common theme i guess around the environment would you say but then it's yeah. it's there's so many things that are you know every, everything's in the environment yeah and and i call myself a a specialized generalist is how i refer to my approach is that i'm specialized in environmental stress but you know that can be heat that can be cold can be altitude can be microgravity diving what have you and also within that why i call myself a generalist is that you know, I'm not just a person Heat. who studies muscle or yeah, or yeah. studies the heart. I do all of it. I've published papers in metabolism, in cognitive functioning, working with psychologists, uh, it, with muscle function, with cardiovascular system, and everything in between. So again, there's just I never get bored because. <laughs> There's just so much variety and I just find all of it so interesting rather than, again, be laser focused on one concept or one idea. And it's for me, it's it's also very easy to interact with colleagues and in a sense, come up with new ideas because I joke all the time that I just go to my colleagues and say, hey, what do you study? And they tell me, you know, I study muscle or motor control and I go like, well, can we do that while they're hot or cold? And there you go. There's a new idea. There's a new collaboration. And yeah, it's your, yeah. Well, can we do that while we're hot? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you try that while you were cold? I like that. Yeah. It's just sort of putting the twist on something, right? It's sort of that idea of like, you could take a business and then put it in another place or something. Right. And it's like Chipotle, but in, you know, New York. And mm -hmm. go, oh, okay. All right. I like that. Um, from there, then I guess, you know, the, thing that comes to mind then is I wonder if we should, yeah, maybe, you know, you mentioned your videos you're doing, these three-minute videos on environmental ergonomics. And I guess maybe for me, if not for the listener, what's what would be the difference then? Could you contrast environmental physiology versus environmental ergonomics? Sure. I Well, first off, I run what I call the environmental ergonomics lab at Brock and before that at Dalhousie. And the reason I call it Again, the environmental ergonomics lab rather than the environmental physiology is, I guess, goes back to what we've just talked about, that I like to be really wide ranging. Ergonomics is the study of really humans at work. And so humans interacting in the in the environment. And whereas physiology is really about how the body works, whereas ergonomics can be much broader than that, can be, again, cognitive functioning, can be industrial design. And so that's why I didn't want to limit myself when I named the lab to physiology. I wanted to go broader and give myself the broader scope to call it the environmental ergonomics lab instead. And rather than, again, the thermal you know, physiology lab, which is kind of my bread and butter. But again, I didn't want to be limited to that. So, 
So I think even when I first came up with the name, it was always with this mentality of being as broad as possible. So physiology is how the body works. And, and uh, I see that as a subset of ergonomics, how the body works in a whole environment. Like I say, there's psychology, there is, there is uh, industrial kind of design, human factors, all of these things that go into ergonomics. So I wanted to be involved in that also mm-hmm. so so yeah again it, it goes back to my being as broad as possible and plus you know i mean you end up with an acronym of eels right so so my uh, <laughs> students are baby eels and then they graduate and mature oh. and you know swim off on their own <laughs> i was gonna say that sounds cute but it's not really cute it was, <laughs> yeah um, it's as close as i get to like the papa smurf and the and the smurfs kind of idea okay. what would you say you know your most like you know, when you think back on all the work you've done, what would you say has been you know, maybe the most popular, the most influential, the most referred to uh, as far as the work you've done, the studies you've done? Uh, hopefully you have time for all this, uh, but I'll pick up on, I guess, one, well, it's really my PhD work that in a way has influenced the field as a whole the most. And it really was an incidental finding in my PhD. I did my doctorate at the University of Toronto, but it was all sponsored by the Canadian Forces, the military, which has and operates a, a lab, a military research lab in North York, just on the edge of Toronto. So all of my work was there. This was in the mid 90s, so shortly after the first Gulf War. And there was a big threat of humans and soldiers having to fight in the desert wearing very heavy chemical warfare clothing. So that was the basis of my research. And I won't necessarily go into kind of what I was actually studying, but the really incidental kind of weird finding I had in the process was that I found that people tended to stop exercising at a very consistent core temperature. And that, you know, whether you were hydrated properly or not, whether you were heat adapted or not, uh, you, you ended coming out and stopping your exercise at a, a very, very consistent core temperature. And the other interesting thing was there was a systematic difference between, between uh, untrained individuals and very aerobically trained individuals. The untrained individuals came out at about 38 seven degree core temperature the fit individuals came out at about 39.3 where we had to take them out for ethics and again it wasn't what i was studying but it was really incidental finding but it was almost like a one sentence throwaway in a paper that i wrote but a lot of other scientists picked up on it going what's up with this and this really led to in many ways, the way the field of thermal physiology is today, that the idea that there is something direct about temperature itself that causes you to stop exercising. And, you know, before we all thought it was mainly cardiovascular, mainly blood pressure related, that, that causes stop exercising. But it was really based on that finding led to a whole bunch of research by others that led to this idea of there is something about temperature in and of itself that hmm. makes us stop exercising. So now there's been a, 
wholesale look at multiple mechanisms from brain blood flow to gut leakage to uh, hyperventilation and kind of breathing difficulties. So really just and neurotransmitters in the brain. So I think that one finding kind of really sparked was a catalyst for a lot of changes in the field. So I would say that's probably my most kind of, it's certainly my most cited research. And it's also, I think, the most impactful in terms of really ultimately changing how we look at exercise and especially in the heat. Hmm. What a great, you know, even the, it's not even the takeaway that you're providing that was a, you know, as you say, a throwaway or a, a, a you know, just another point that came up or another finding, uh, but that, it, you know, that sometimes in life, it's it's not the thing you expect that actually is the beneficial or the, you know, the most popular thing or whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, this is a concept I really raise when I speak to grad students is, most of the time we design a study because we have a specific idea and we designed the study, you know, kind of stacked in the odds of finding that. Right. But, but it's these incidental findings going like, Hmm, what's up with that? That, you know, again, often is the most impactful. You look at how, I think it was whatever nylon was invented or Teflon, right. It was the same thing. It was, it was, you know, this thing just, stuck everywhere and, and, you know, nothing would stick to it. You know, it wasn't what the chemists were looking for originally and they followed up on that. So that's why I always say, you know, those things don't just discard them, really go, Hmm, like, why is that? And, and push it and see, see where it leads you. Hmm. Where I think I'll go with that, you know, that's sort of a, a thing I've heard you, I have two, I guess, off of this. Perhaps they seem out of nowhere, but I've heard you describe, and I thought it was just a great um, analogy, I think, for this is the idea of sort of you're running out of gas and you're, you know, at some point you actually are out of gas and you stop, the car mm-hmm. stops, but there's like the warning sensor, right? And is that sort of, you, you tell that in relation to this idea? Yeah, I, I, again, one of the ideas that that original study sparked was, it led to Tim Noakes coming up with his idea about the central governor and that it's really temperature. You predict how hard you're going to be running and also how hot you're going to get. And then your brain kind of slows you down. And so there is kind of a, a true physical limit to your capacity. And then there is a kind of a voluntary limit to your capacity. So, you know, you can so probably like a, like a red line versus yeah. a red zone or something. Yeah. Right? And I think a really useful analogy is that car with the, with the gas light coming yeah. on, right? Like your Ultim- range. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately you're going to run out of gas, you know, and how, right. how much gas you have in a tank depends on your fitness and everything. But, but, um, you know, most of the time we don't come anywhere close to it. And that's because we don't die when we cross the finish line. Right. right. Our body right. limits how hard we're willing to exercise so that we don't face this catastrophic collapse. And um, but we'll try to get there as fast as we can. So you know, the way to really look at it is, you know, when you are getting really hot, for example, and you're feeling really, really uncomfortable, you're super thirsty. Well, those are your yellow gas lights coming on and it's really up to you and your psychology and your motivation, how much you 
fixate on that. Some people, as soon as that gas light goes on, I need a, I need gas right now. I need to find the next gas station right now. Others will, will realize, well, no, I mean, I can still keep driving for a little bit longer. You know, I'll keep an eye on it, but it's no big deal. Keep going, right? So that's really some of the really fascinating work I've done recently where we've looked at kind of psychological interventions and the the interaction between psychology and actual physiology and our performance. Yeah. You see that in mountain bike races, people will like drop a bottle in a 90 minute race and it's just their performance drops 20%. And you're like, well, <laughs> I mean, it was 90 <laughs> minutes. You're going to get another bottle in 10 minutes. Like what, how did that, you just die? Like you just basically faded because of dehydration in 10 minutes in a 90 minute. I don't know if that's how that works. Yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, that was in terms of another paper that I'm very, very proud of was a paper that we came out with in 2015 where we were looking at exactly that, looking at hydration. And we were the first to actually blind participants to hydration because most or all previous studies, I won't even say most, all previous studies had tested hydration by saying, hey, Peter, you know, today you get, you know, this bottle of water, go exercise as hard as you can. Another day you come in and I say, well, guess what? You don't get any water today. So if you've been inundated with this message that I have to drink, I have to drink or else I'm in trouble. If I tell you, well, you don't get a bottle today, your mentality is already reset itself to say, okay, I'm going to be dehydrated. I can't work as hard because, you know, I'm feeling, I'm going to feel more thirsty and all that. So it might not be any physiological change. It can be just psych psychological and that's exactly what we tested. So we blinded participants to their hydration status by having an IV in their arms. And while they were exercising, we either reinfused the same amount of saline as you were losing through sweat, or else we just had a sham rehydration. So, you know, you actually weren't getting rehydrated at all, but you didn't know. And so we had them ride for 90 minutes in the heat to alter their hydration status. And then we had them do a 20K time trial. And uh, there was no, no difference in the power output, no difference in performance or pacing. Whether and it were, was hot too, right? It was yeah, like 30, 35 is what yeah, I think that was, that was the one I was hoping you were going to bring up. So I'm glad you brought it up. It was, I got it on the second try. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's, that was the one I, you know, it was really interesting because I think this brings in so many issues that are maybe hard for people to understand, right? It's like, cause now you could say, wow, you just don't need to drink on a bicycle. Yeah. And, <laughs> right? and, and I, I don't want to say that again, right. eventually you will get dehydrated. Your performance will become impaired but you know given that case situation about two hours effort and where it was hot hot you know if you are fit you can deal with it and it's not going to be catastrophic yes your heart rate's going to be higher yes your core temperature is going to be higher but it's not to a point where you're going to suffer a catastrophic collapse and you can still exercise just as hard so again the thing i want to emphasize is don't let these things become a mental crutch. And what was really funny was we were doing this study you know, in the fall of summer and fall of 2013. And I remember Taylor Finney was one of the favorites in the, in the world's time trial. And 
and uh, except he really underperformed. And in the race reports on Cycling News, both him and his coach kept saying, well, I dropped a water bottle early on. And, you know, we all know what happens, you know, with if you can't drink. And we were actually doing that study at the time going, hmm, well, <laughs> you know, maybe not. And, that, right. and, you know, that's kind of a prime example of where it became a mental crutch in a way, whereas for an hour effort, you know, you're, you're not going to suffer catastrophic dehydration to the point where it's also going to impact your performance unless it becomes, again, this mental crutch that you can't perform if you can't drink. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of the, you know, the obvious question that someone, you know, who's maybe not well-versed in physiology, you know, they're so like, do they, do, should they drink still when they're doing their one hour ride or there's, you know, you were doing a Zwift, you know, hard Zwift interval workout this morning. Like, were you drinking, I guess, on your Zwift ride? Um, I, I don't think it's crazy essential. I mean, drink if you want and drink to thirst, but don't think that you have to drink or else you cannot perform. Certainly for a one hour effort, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Even if you're in the heat, I think you can still perform quite well. You look at, at marathoners, the elite marathoners, they will, you know, run two hours plus and basically don't drink or at most splash a tiny bit of water on them and their core temperature gets really high there and they become quite dehydrated, but they can handle it. And, you know, it, I'm not saying, you know, never drink, but, you know, again, don't use it as a mental crutch that if I can't drink, I can't perform. And mm -hmm. especially for these shorter type of efforts. Yeah. If it's right. an all day ride, you know, a tour stage, where it's five hours in the mountains and in, in the heat of summer, I absolutely drink. I mean, I'm not saying, saying you can do that and not suffer consequences, but again, for most of us, I, th yeah, I think, uh, you know, we overly obsess about drinking and I just want to kind of throw a counter kind of weight to that. <laughs> right. Right. And there's maybe, I guess there's two pieces, like, would there be a cooling piece, but you're, you're saying no, not for the sub, you know, 90 minutes even, um, um, like the, it, the cooling, because you're doing 35 degrees here. So it didn't, it didn't affect the performance. It didn't affect performance. And, uh, but again, for longer efforts, the, the ideal would be the ice slushies. And that, I guess, has been kind of kind of a new thing in sports science for about the past 10 years or so to really, if you can, to be ingesting slushies rather than just cold water because... Like, even during the race or the yeah, performance. Yeah. yeah, and because melting ice takes a huge amount of energy to go from zero degrees Celsius ice to zero degrees mm -hmm. Celsius water, there's a huge amount of heat that's extracted from there. So... So it's much more effective than just okay. drinking, you know, for example, one degree Celsius water. Okay. Obviously, it's hard to take in a huge amount of slushy. But, yeah, I'm just yeah. thinking of in the middle of a mountain bike race, like jamming ice yeah. into my mouth. But but there yeah. are some water bottles now that are kind of designed specifically for endurance sports and and to make it easier to kind of squeeze out uh, ice okay. chips or ice slurries. Yeah. And you're saying that it's it's absorbing more heat, but not it's not taking more calories, more work 
for you to do that. So it's beneficial. Right. Yeah. Right. It's really adding as, you know, kind of soaking up more heat from your body. So someone in like a dirty Kansas situation, you know, where cooling can become a, a big issue over like many, many hours, they could be even doing that at the aid station, if not, as you say, sort of mm -hmm. like trying to bring stuff in a bottle or something as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you never, you can never predict uh, the temperature, but some years it's crazy hot and other years it's not as hot, but uh, yeah, it's, if you can rig a thing, keep kind of water bottles cold because you're also going to drink more when it's colder. And mm -hmm. so if you can have, you know, whether it's again, a mountain bike, a 24 hour event, keep your drinks cold because you'll drink more. And it also gives you the option of pouring it on your body and extracting more heat that way also. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so you can do a lot to manage the heat. And that's another thing that many people think as soon as it gets hot, I can't perform as well. But as we've seen in elite sports, it's something that you can prepare for and manage for. And I had Evan Dunphy, the Canadian race walker, who yeah, he did some great stuff. Yeah, he was amazing. And in 2019 at Doha Worlds, he got bronze and was actually only four seconds off silver. But he was a prime example. And I had him speak at my series and about his experiences and also with Dr. Trent Stellingworth, who was the main sports science support. So they were talking about how they actually managed to compete in you know, 45 degree Celsius in Qatar and, and all of their strategies from, again, keeping the water bottles cold, having a constant kind of uh, changes of ice hats, uh, really chilled hats that he would put on his head and his drinking strategy, pouring water over his head, ice socks, the whole works and pre-cooling. And, you know, he had a best ever performance. And whereas a lot of other athletes, even though they knew it was going to be in Qatar, it was going to be crazy hot. They didn't acclimate the heat. They didn't really have a heat strategy and they suffered. But, you know, you knew it was going to be in Qatar four or five years, six years ahead of time. Right. And yet so many athletes didn't take it seriously. Whereas if you really plan for it, it may not be your PR that you're going to set, but you're still going to be able to compete optimally. So it is something to plan for, but not necessarily something to fear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the catch with most things, you know, whether your altitude or the race is just the demands of a, a given race, you know, basically does reward pre preparation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, I, I marvel that we, we have studies come out looking at the 2016 world champs in cycling, which was in Qatar and also 2019 athletics world champs and the surveys of athletes who looking at their heat management strategies and a vast majority of them didn't acclimate the heat beforehand and you know didn't really have much of a heat management strategy and it was just mind-blowing again it's not a surprise that you're going to be in a hot environment you know exactly the date you can even model what uh, what kind of the predicted temperature is going to be. And, and Trent and Evan had it so dialed down that they set a pacing strategy. The, 
the humidity level dropped suddenly kind of about four hours before the race started for Evan. And, you know, they remodeled things and came up with, okay, based on the slightly cooler environment, you know, let's change your pace strategy. That means they had it that dialed down. And that you know, seems really unnerving. <laughs> You'd have to be really confident in the, yeah, and, the model. Yeah. And, um, but Evan also posted his, uh, he posted it on Twitter, his core temperature, heart rate, and speed profiles. And it was amazing. You could just see he was in control, in control. And then the last 10K, he just really ramped up his pace. You saw his core temperature and his heart rate go up to, you know, 39.5 for his core temperature. So, you know, he really nailed that kind of final 10K of the 50K to really push it. And again, it was, he was only four seconds off the, (laughs) off the uh, silver, but it was just a world-class performance from him. And, and it goes to the, again, the idea of proper planning, proper preparation can get you really, really far. So now you're, you know, a busy person. You're a master's cyclist like myself. Uh, if you were going to do, again, dirty cans, a pick the hot, hot environment, long race, uh, like what would you do, you know, in your basement with your trainer? Like what would you do to get ready for that? You know, assuming you're coming from a, a fairly chilly environment versus something that's going to be quite hot. Uh, like what, what would be out of all these options and things you know about, like what do you think are the most practical, uh, you know, for the everyday working uh, yeah. adult? Well, the number one thing you can do is to become heat adapted beforehand, right? You can do kind of almost stopgap type measures like pre-cooling, like pouring cold water on, on your body. And yes, you should do those, but they don't come anywhere close to the kind of systemic improvement that you're going to have from adapting the heat beforehand. And to do that, you, if you are, for example, like right now, um, you know, we're, we're in the depths of winter. One of the things you can do is to be training indoors and, you know, with the heat a bit turned up and maybe not have as much of a fan going. And the whole point of the whole goal for heat adaptation is to spend about two weeks at least where you are systematically raising your core temperature. And you can do that with a combination of indoor riding again, with less kind of airflow and ventilation to drive your core temperature up for about an hour, hour and a half each day. You can also do that with a combination of both indoor riding. And if you have access to a hot tub or a sauna to, to, uh, use those right after you finish exercising to really maintain that heat stress in your body by having that heat stimulus, you're going to, have much higher plasma volume. And there's also some evidence that with really extended heat adaptation, you might even have, uh, in addition to a higher plasma volume, an increase in red blood cell count too, that your body is essentially trying to compensate for the higher plasma volume by also raising the amount of red blood cells. And that might The evidence so far is that it might take five or more weeks to achieve that. But certainly within two weeks, what you will see is a lower resting heart rate. And part of that is a higher plasma volume. You'll see a lower resting core temperature. 
you'll see also a higher sweating response. So you are going to sweat earlier and also your sweat response is much more sensitive. And um, so all of those is going to help you offload heat during exercise. So that by far is the best thing that you can do. And then again, on site, there's a lot of things you can do that I've mentioned, such as making sure you're drinking, uh, maintaining your hydration. If it's a very long event, making sure it's relatively cool water, you know, ice socks, ice hats, whatever, if you're running, all those kind of things can help. But you know, they're, they're much more kind of on the spot things rather than these big systemic changes that you'll see with heat adaptation. Right. Now, before everyone goes and turns off all their, uh, you know, their fans and their turns the temperature up in the house and everything else. Cause we've been talking a lot about, you know, that's one of the biggest mistakes you make, uh, with indoor training. Uh, can you explain a bit of, like time and place, you know, is this like the week or two ahead of the event or how soon can you start? And, and then also like, is it every day of the week and just rough yeah. protocol? I know this is a little, but yeah, know, just and, some rough cautions. <laughs> and, and what I will do is actually, I'll kind of talk in general about, I had the fortune before the 2016 worlds to work with Amber Neben and her coach to get ready for Qatar, where she ended up winning the gold medal, which was in the time trial, which was phenomenal. And she was based in Southern California. So it's warm, but not Qatar hot. But uh, some of the strategies we had, we had her about six weeks out start becoming heat adapted. So it wasn't just, you know, cram in the heat right before she left for Qatar. It was, we already had her heat adapted from about between six to four weeks out. And then, you know, we had her maintain that heat adaptation. Once you're heat adapted, you can just have periodic kind of heat loads and you'll maintain it. It's not like you need to do it every day afterwards, because we also obviously wanted her to taper properly. And, you know, we didn't want to add that heat stress on top of the tapering right? Because that's just an extra load that you're putting on your body. So we had her well ahead of times. And we also had some, you know, pretty low tech ways to maintain and achieve heat adaptation. She had access to a sauna. So that was one of the things we had her train. And then immediately, you know, as soon as she finished training, she was in the sauna and for an extra 30, 40 minutes and with her recovery drink. So she was still able to start recovery, but at the same time she was maintaining her heat stimulus. So that was one thing we did. The other question we also had was if she had to do, do, um, you know, her race pace intervals, her really top quality intervals, should she do them kind of in, in a hot environment or in a, you know, a thermal neutral or a cooler environment? And my advice was, do it in a, in an optimal condition, because you're really trying to get the best training you can, right? So, so uh, do those in a comfortable, cooler environment. And, you know, without the added heat load, because you're not gonna be able to exercise as hard if, if your body temperature is high. And then we also had some kind of low tech ways of, of having heat stress. One is just I had her bundle up like crazy as if it was in the middle of winter for some of her rides to add to the heat load. And uh, so that's another kind of low tech thing that you can do. 
And um, yeah, so there's all sorts of different strategies and it's really fitting it to the devil is in the details. It's fitting it right. to that athlete in that particular situation. So, you know, there's a lot of these broad ideas. Again, it's how do we actually implement them? That's the real challenge. Yeah, I'm probably getting help if people are taking it, you know, to the extremes of that. But I think your rule of even just like, are you trying to maximize your performance today is I think where, you know, people go sideways. They do something like you did. You did your four by four this morning and you know you probably wanted to you know, show the guys you were going really well. So I would imagine you used some cooling and fans and stuff. Well, well, I I was in my garage and when I woke up this morning, it was two degrees (laughs) Celsius in the garage. So I I broke down and I uh, put the heaters on for for (laughs) You had a a different type of thermal to roll. (laughs) Yeah, I got it up to 10 to 8 degrees, 10 degrees before, uh, before I did it, which is, you know, some of the research shows that's really the ideal kind of temperature where there's not that much heat load at all. Okay. Around 10. Yeah. And that's degrees Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. 10, 11 yeah. degrees. That was a classic study done in my postdoc lab, uh, the year before I showed up and, uh, where they had, had, uh, four conditions four, 11, 21 and 31 degrees Celsius. And they had them ride at a steady effort to exhaustion. And what they found, no surprise was that 31 degrees, you had significant impairment, but the other kind of thing that really stuck out was, you know, the, of the three remaining temperatures, 11 degrees was, had a much higher, uh, performance than, than, uh, four degrees and 21 degrees. And that led to a lot of ideas that, you know, again, this optimal temperature is, is much lower than we think. I think, uh, you know, if we're, kind of designing our own indoor indoor training setup. The thing we have to keep in mind, though, the big methodological limitation in that study was they essentially had no airflow. They had no fan on. The airflow, they said in the paper, was two and a half kilometers an hour, which is essentially nothing. And Man, that's what I was going to ask if you are using it. Yeah. And uh, but the studies where there are adequate airflow, uh, shows that that is the biggest ergogenic aid that you can have in your indoor environment that in a way it trumps having adequate hydration also even trumps having um, having pre-cooling as an intervention that was another study that was part of in 2014 where we showed that um, you know pre-cooling if you didn't have a fan on and you were exercising in the heat pre-cooling was effective but if you just had the fan on, it was already better than pre-cooling without the fan. And then adding or layering pre-cooling on top of having adequate airflow didn't change anything. So studies like that really show that you need to have adequate and appropriate airflow. And if you have that, you know, don't really worry about the temperature, certainly kind of in the range of about five degrees Celsius to 20 something degrees Celsius. If it's 30 and above, yeah, you're still going to be impacted, but that's not okay. the case. Because a lot of people, that's their house, right? They're just, they can't really change the temperature. You know, they'll get in trouble with their family if they yeah. drop the temperature down to 10, pipes are bursting maybe. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you say, but that's, you might need more fans though to, right? Like yeah. the temp, you might need to have them on higher or more fans if you were up around 20 versus 10. 
Absolutely. And right. your again, your heart rate, your core temperature is going to be different than those. Don't worry about it. That's just your body thermal regulating. It's not catastrophic. But if you have you want to get good quality fans and most of the ones that we get in stores, uh, you're ideally going to need more than one of them. And um, I would also have one kind of directed more towards the face and another one kind of more towards the chest. And a lot of people, I think, make the mistake of having the, the fan too close to you, thinking hmm. that's going to give them the most airflow. But you're really just trying to mix the air around you. And a lot of the times you want it to be, the fan should be actually further away to, to uh, have the best effect. And you can kind of feel it, right, and play it by trial and error you can just see move the fan around and see what feels like the most air moving across your body and again a lot of times it's farther away than you think as canadians you know we think a lot about the cold is there it strikes me and this can be a shorter answer too like there's not nearly the adaptation and the you know the pre-cooling and stuff for for cold temperatures right like you wouldn't other than just not pre-cooling yourself i guess um is there anything like you know as far as this adaptation and these strategies for cold weather uh i guess it depends if you're going to be doing one of these ultras in the arctic then yes there are ways to really have good physiological adaptation it's not as dramatic as as heat adaptation but you can do it to some extent but most of the time it's it's more a perceptual or psychological adaptation or habituation right. kind of to use the scientifically correct term and you know we we all see that right when we first first uh, cold days of winter we're just going like this is really really crazy cold and we're bundled up but you know when it comes to a week later you know we're you know our jackets isn't as zipped up or and sure. then we don't feel as cold. And a lot of that is just, you know, our brain has turned down the sensitivity of those signals. The cold sensors are still firing just as much, but the brain just says, oh, okay, it's not a big deal. I can turn down kind of the volume of it. And mm -hmm. so a lot of, lot of kind of our cold adaptation is more psychological. There are some physiological things going on under the hood, but it's not nearly as dramatic as with heat adaptation. Right. So it's probably getting used to it mentally, you know, it's like, you know, just, okay, this is reality. And then probably a big part of it is just learning. I know this is for me, like I'm always really bold, you know, with my dress, you know, I'm too, too little, too little. And then you sort of figure out your tactics for how to dress more warmly or more optimally. So yeah. it would almost be like a practice effect, right? Or like a equipment. Yeah. And absolutely. And, and, um, so much of it is just practice, trial and error, knowing what works, knowing what temperature in a sense really gets to you. I know mm. for me, it's those kind of fall or early spring days where it might be you know, four or five degrees Celsius, but it's just gray clouds and whistling wind. And sure. those are the days that really, you know, I... I'd rather have a, a below zero day than, than those kind of days. Those kind of days really just uh, cut through me. So right. everybody kind of has their, their kryptonite, I think. <laughs> we got one more question on cold and heat. This one, again, might be a, a miss. We'll see where it goes. But um, Molly asked me the other day, and it was sort of around this idea of like, is it 
do you burn more calories, I guess, in the cold versus the heat would be one way you could phrase it. Or, you know, is, is there, I guess, independent of the exercise is the cold, like, does it require more maybe shivering or something versus heat where you're trying to cool? Like, do you have any thoughts in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. And the, in broad strokes, Molly's absolutely correct. You do burn more energy in the cold and that's the case even if you are not actively shivering and our body has um, has these specialized fat cells called brown adipose tissue and not much of it but it is there and what they tend to do is their metabolism ramps up when you are experiencing mild cold and again this is even before you start shivering uh, if you're just in a cooler room for a couple of hours, you will see these brown adipose tissues increase their activity and, uh, and increase their metabolism and also their heat production. So there's been a ton of work on that over the last 20 years. We've always known in a sense that it was there in, in other mammals and especially in hibernating mammals, but the idea was that there might be some in infants, in hu infant humans, but that it disappears by the time you're about a year old. And it was really only about 20 years ago that we realized, hey, there's more of it. It actually stays around as an adult and there's more of it than, than we thought. And they have this amazing capacity, again, to ramp up their metabolism, ramp up their, their uh, heat production. So... Yes, absolutely. And then the other thing is if you are to the point where you are actually shivering and hypothermic, and uh, in those cases, absolutely, you're going to be requiring more energy to perform a set exercise because you need to, you know, ride your bike at 200 watts, but you, your muscles are also shivering to burn, to uh, burn energy and create heat. So so yeah, there's uh there's definite impairment if you are too cold also. So uh, that was a study that my master's student did and we published in 2018 showing that if we cooled you down by half a degree and had you exercise in a zero degree chamber, uh, you know, no big surprise, your your um, time trial capacity is not nearly as high and it really comes down to your blood vessels constricting and not delivering as much oxygen to your muscles as when they are warmer. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. So hang on, I'm going to try to like de-science that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so if you maybe want to burn more running or riding in cooler temperatures might actually up your caloric burn, but if you want to perform better, being warmer, like optimal temperature is going to be better for performance. Yep. And again, yes. ultimately <laughs> your body has this nice kind of relatively narrow range of temperatures at which it's going to operate best. And so you want, if you want peak performance, you want to stay within that. And, uh, but yeah, at the same time, if, and there are, there are some ideas out there that if we can, in essence, lower our thermostat in, in our house, and, and tolerate instead of the temperature being, let's say, at 23 degrees Celsius, 
drop it down to 20 degrees Celsius, and maybe that that will cause our brown adipose tissue to fire more, and maybe we can burn off more energy that way. And oh, so that, darn it, you've just given Peter like the reason case. that we keep our we, we keep like, ours at like 15, 16 all the time. So, <laughs> but I'm always trying to just nudge it down. Yeah. Battle but, of the uh, wills. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a, the brown adipose tissue, besides being kind of environmental, kind of a physiology, the, the reason why it's also so interesting is whether it can help with, again, energy metabolism and the obesity kind of epidemic by increasing yeah. our energy kind of burning capacity. Hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll watch for that one. I have one more question. Do you have, you're good for time? Absolutely. Yeah. I want to make sure we get to your rock climbing, you know, as a, you're a consummate academic, but you're also a consummate athlete, uh, because you've, you know, you're not just cycling, you've recently taken on rock climbing. So I was just curious about that, that experience of, you know, an adult cyclist takes mm-hmm. on rock climbing. Like what was that like learning something new at a, you know, as an adult? Yeah. Well, I had my last sabbatical in 2018, 2019, and we decided to move our family over to Kelowna in British Columbia in the, in the Okanagan. And um, I had some great colleagues there, but honestly, a lot of it was about enjoying the outdoors. And my two boys, our two boys uh, had 11 years of competitive gymnastics, but when we moved out there, they didn't want to continue in gymnastics. So we're looking for another outlet for them. And we came across, there's this, you know, bouldering gym in Kelowna and my wife and I knew nothing about it, but we decided to check it out. And, and, uh, also a lot of my colleagues there and the grad students at UBC Okanagan were really into bouldering. So that kind of became our thing. And, um, we just became passionate about it. Our two boys had the advantage of being gymnasts and uh, they just took to it like a duck to water. And, uh, but it was just fascinating. I just turned 50 when we moved out there. So it's kind of neat to be at the age of 50 and picking up a new sport. And it's something that I've just become passionate about, uh, for many reasons. It's for family reasons. I think it's just a great sport because, you know, my wife, myself, and our two boys, we're all there together, but it's not like one of us is slowing the other down, which you often have in endurance sports, right? If you're going out, whether it's with your spouse or with your, with even with other friends, somebody always wants to ride longer or faster and, you know, it becomes really annoying after a while like that. Especially (laughs) when you're like, that's your sport, right? So like to try and get a spouse into it, it would be very hard, but this is something that now you can combine family time, you know, I yeah. have to say work time if you're doing with that with the students as well, but you're sort of yeah. stacking that with your exercise. Yeah, absolutely. The beauty of it is, you know, for our family, all four of us are there in the same gym, but, you know, my wife gets just as much thrill, exercise, and sense of accomplishment climbing at her level as I do at mine, as the boys at their kind of much more advanced levels. And so it's it's a great kind of family environment that way. And the other reason I really fell in love with it is that it is so different from cycling and most endurance sports. And I find, especially in cycling, one of the beauties of it is that you can ride and almost be zoned out. 
kind of just be in this kind of Zen's flow state, whatever you want to call it, where you're, you're thinking about a lot of things at the same time as you're moving your body. And, you know, there's a definite enjoyment to that, but you partner that or contrast that with rock climbing. And it's completely night and day different where instead of zoning out, you are so laser focused. You cannot be thinking about anything else than your very next move and, and where your body is in space and what your body is capable of. So it's that absolute laser focus that is so different from, from endurance sports that I find really fascinating and refreshing as a contrast. And then, you know, again, having turned 50, I've just become so fascinated and, and, uh, by rock climbing as a means of whole body exercise, strength, mm. core, you know, it's all there. And, and now, if we we're almost, selling that, if we were selling that, would you say that you've seen a transfer? Has your cycling gotten better because of trying this something else? I think so. Um, because I've been able to have much, I think, stronger core because most of the time, you know, you can't get that excited about, oh, I'm going to go downstairs and do a core workout. And whereas you go climbing and you're instantly working your entire body. And, um, so it's, it's a free core and weight workout that, um, is phenomenal. And so I really love it for that. And I think sure. it, it really has built kind of my, my strength and also my overall kind of durability in order to take on more training kind of on, on the bike or running and, and things nice. like that. That's music to my ears. That's my theory. And I, I find myself defending cross training very often and I'm not, I feel it's like, like sometimes increasingly, you, you don't even like, you just start fights about it. You're not even, well, I don't know. It's just like this thing where it's like, no, never. I was like, I'm pretty sure we were supposed to cross train in the base season. I don't know why this has become a thing we don't do anymore. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just love rock climbing and and doing different things now. Now that again, I'm I'm still you know racing whenever I can, but it's not kind of the central focus of my kind of life or my cycling life anymore. And I just really enjoy mixing it up now, and that's why. You know, I'll go for a couple of runs a week, just uh, short 30 minute runs just to you know, sure. again, improve that durability of my body. And obviously, as I'm getting older, I want to maintain that. And uh, but yeah, I, I I would do rock climbing even without all these other benefits just sure. because it's so much fun. So if we were going to start uh, bouldering, I guess is more specific, but, mm -hmm. and what would you say would like, what would be your first advice or, or steps that you like, you know, if you were starting again, what would you, what would you tell us? Uh, well, don't fall like I did <laughs> and have a near death experience in your So was that year. like too, too soon or you did, were you doing it without instruction or like, why, how do we avoid the death? <laughs> well, always a fair question. Well, I'll, uh, I'll get to the near-death experience, but I would say the first thing is I think bouldering is a fabulous way to get into climbing because, in a sense, you don't need to learn all of the, um, the rope work, the, the knots, the, the belaying and all that stuff. So you, it's very low cost of entry. It's literally like a pair of shoes and you can do it and a bag of chalk kind of idea. So there's very, very low entry. 
And I would say as you get into the sport, absolutely technique is everything. There is nothing more hilarious than seeing a bunch of gym bros come into the gym and in the climbing gym and then and then trying to just muscle up everything. And then within a couple of couple of routes, their whole body is just pumped and and uh and then but if you learn technique, you'll actually find that so much of it is power from the hip and the core and and also the legs rather than the arms. So um so definitely learn technique. It'll take you take you very very long way and uh you know where did my accident come from i think it was it i had a freak fall uh while i was lead climbing so i was the one setting the rope and and uh yeah and i i fell pretty hard landed on a rock ledge about three four meters below me and and broke and dislocated my foot and I probably in retrospect should have had my son who is a much stronger climber kind of set that route and lead that route. But I actually was on that exact same route um, just three days before with a couple of other buddies and I'd managed to climb it on top rope where the rope was ahead of me um, successfully twice. So I figured, okay, Zach doesn't know the, doesn't, hasn't climbed this route. I only did it, you know, three days ago and I, I did it completely clean. So maybe I'll go lead. And, and, uh, <laughs> in retrospect that always let the stronger climber, uh, climber lead. So, but yeah, it's, um, okay. That's good advice. <laughs> yeah. Definitely know your limits is the biggest thing because it can be catastrophic. It's okay. not not just the case of, oh, you know, I've I've ridden farther than I should and I've bonked and and things. You can actually end up in a stretcher with like I did. So that was probably a little bit, you know, I knew the technique. It wasn't kind of a lack of technique. It was probably just going above my my limits of where I should have been at the time. And, uh, so yeah, that was definitely a big lesson. Okay. All right. Well, on that, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll finish it up so people can find you on eel Brock on Twitter, which I actually now get, I had never, I just was like, oh, maybe it's like initials or something, but eel. Yeah. So eel, the animal Brock on Twitter, yep. uh, you have your books we'll link to on Amazon. You say there's a new version coming. Uh, do you have a date? when we can yes, expect that or it should be in early April and the book is oh, wow. my, uh, in 2010, I published advanced environmental exercise physiology, which is, yeah, as, as it sounds, it's about all the different environments. So everything from microgravity to underwater diving to high altitude, altitude training, heat, cold, hydration, everything. And uh, that came out in 2010, and it was really gratifying. It's kind of the definitive um, kind of textbook for higher level undergrads and grads uh, in the field. And so partly because of COVID and partly because of my sabbatical, I decided to update it. So uh, it is a really big update. It is not just a cosmetic update and to the point that we have five new chapters on topics that you know in a sense didn't even exist 10 years ago and every other chapter has been kind of overhauled from a clean slate approach and there's tons of great infographics in there 
that we've added as new. So some of the new areas like free diving uh, hasn't was really kind of the science of it really came out in the last 10 years. So we've included that. Uh, we've looked at a whole section on whole separate chapter on heat therapy on everything from looking at the the cardiovascular benefits of heat therapy to using it in muscle rehab. Um, we also have another chapter on sex differences, which has really kind of emerged over the last 10 years in environmental stress. So there's a lot of new things. So it ended up being something I'm really, really proud of having, uh, having done the update. Okay. Awesome. So we'll link to your Amazon page in any case. And I think the textbooks there, the older one is still there. So we can look for that in April. Uh, And then we'll also link to the videos you're doing on YouTube for the environmental ergonomics and to all the, to your articles on PEZ as well, which we didn't even talk about, but you do articles for PEZ cycling as well, sort of distilling latest research and so forth in cycling. So we'll link to that for people so they can follow along there. Great. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today, Steve. Yes, thank you. Oh, this has been fun. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.